Well, there's something I told myself that I would never do, that I would never be into. The problem is there's about like 75% of my close friends that are really into this thing. I mean, this thing is kind of a craze right now, the last few years. It's this shiny, pretty, expensive thing that everyone's talking about. And it's funny because my husband and I, we like to kind of make fun of the people that are into this thing. We kind of like talk about them. Oh, did you hear they were talking about it again? They were all sitting around sharing stats, asking, you know, how long they'd been on that and how cool that one trainer was and whatever. And, and we're kind of like, we'll never get in. Like, we're so not those type of people. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, the Peloton. The Peloton craze. Maybe you have no idea in here. You're like, what in the world is it? It's a, it's a stationary bike. You don't even get to go outside. It's in your house. There's some big screen, and you bike, 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 bike. And I've just kind of been like, I don't even like bikes outside, so why would I get a bike inside? You know, I'm never going there. Until recently, I found out how many calories you can burn on this thing. I, I was like, I'm sorry, what? Say that again? Because, you know, I try to work out. I try to get a couple of exercises a week. And I, I found out that if you have this Peloton, you can burn, like, three times the amount that I burn in the same amount of time. So, of course, what, what started happening? I'm like, ooh, maybe I need a Peloton, right? How much are they? Oh, my goodness. Whoa, is there one I can get on sale? Can I go on the Facebook marketplace? Like, uh, maybe I should try out the bike. I mean, my friend has offered many times, you ever want to come over and take a ride? You know, and I'm like, no. But now I'm kind of like, maybe, you know? It's like... It's like I just am so intrigued now because I found out some of the benefits and how it might you know, help me. And um, it's just something that I have said and been proud of. Like, I'm never going to get into that. But of course now I'm quickly changing my tune. And uh, there's no sin in getting a Peloton. Let me just say that right there. But the idea behind this is I quickly have changed my mind. It didn't take too long for me to flip-flop on something I've said to do. Even though I pledged I would never be into it, I'm not one of those people, I'm walking up the line right there, tiptoeing up to it. And you know what? The Israelites, they had pledged before the Lord, we will never turn away from you, God. We will never disobey you. We will follow your commands. We will do everything you ask us to do. In fact, in Exodus 24, verse 3, you might remember when they said this to God. We will do everything Yahweh has said we will obey. We will do all that he has to say. We will obey. We won't turn aside. And now in our text today, we're going to see it doesn't take too long for them to change their minds and quickly engage in the sin of idolatry. Well, you know what? If you're a Christian in here, you and I, we've pledged to wholeheartedly follow God to obey him, to keep him first. And yet, we might be closer to engaging in this sin than we think we are. Well, let's remember the context of where we're at in Exodus. We are right at the place where Moses is on Mount Sinai, and he is receiving instructions from the Lord, and he's getting the rest of the law, the tabernacle rules, all of those things. And we come to the end of chapter 31, and let me read to you what's happening at the top of the mountain with Mo between Moses and God. It says this in the end of chapter 31. And he gave to Moses, that's God, Yahweh, gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, 
tablets of stone written with the finger of God. I love how that's said. God's very words to the people of Israel. He hands them over to Moses. And yet, what is happening down the mountain at the very same time? What are the Israelites doing, these same Israelites who pledged to never disobey, to follow God with their whole lives? Well, that comes to chapter 32 and what we're going to study today. So if you haven't turned there already, turn over to Exodus 32, and I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 6 as we dive into what the Israelites are up to while Moses is up there talking with God. Let's see the verse 1. It says this, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Well, not long before this, you might remember the Israelites had received the Ten Commandments. Let me remind you of the first two commandments that they had pledged to follow. The first command said that they shall have no other gods before Yahweh. No other gods. And the second commandment said that they may not make any carved images or idols and worship and bow down to them. And now Moses is back up on the mountain. He's taking some time to talk with God longer than they want, and they start to get restless, and so they turn to their leader, Aaron, the one who's in charge while Moses is away. And it's astonishing to me that Aaron tells them to hand over their gold jewelry, hand over their gold ring, because do you remember who provided that gold to them? Remember when they fled and they left Egypt? They plundered the Egyptians. God gave them this gold. God supplied it for them. And yet now Aaron is gathering that same stuff up. And he said, I'm going to make a God for you. And this God, it was a calf in the shape of a bull, which was a common figure we see in, in ancient times. And it kind of resembled power and a deity. And probably it was made of wood on the inside and gold on the outside. But the people wanted a God they could see and touch and a God they could control. The golden calf was made, and there was an altar, and sacrifices were offered before this God that they were worshiping. And there was even a wild party happening before this. The term there that we see where it says they rose up to play is like this party, this just festival, this crazy celebration before this God, probably engaging in a lot of different sins as they worshiped this idol. Rather than fulfilling the promise of God, of keeping God first, they turned to the sin of idolatry. They quickly had changed their minds from what they pledged to do in full obedience to God and keeping him first. 
They even exclaimed when they saw the statue, O Israel, this is the God that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Well, we see that Israel engages in the sin of idolatry, worshiping an idol rather than Yahweh, the one true God. And that brings us to our first point as we dive into this text. Our first point for you and I this morning is to identify our potential idols. You need to identify your potential idols, and I need to identify my potential idols. Well, an idol is not just a statue or carving, a calf or a Buddha or some figure that we could set up, but an idol is much more than that. An idol is whatever claims that loyalty which belongs to God alone. An idol is a thing that claims the loyalty that belongs to God alone. Some passages you can study further that help us to get a definition for what an idol is are found in Matthew 6:24, Matthew 6:24, as well as Colossians 3:5, Colossians 3:5 and Ephesians 5:5. 5, 5. As we look at the whole of scripture to see that an idol is not just a thing, not just a statue, but as one commentary says, and I love how they put it, so I'm going to read it for you. An idol is anything which displaces God in my heart. Anything which displaces God in my heart. It may be something which is quite harmless in itself. Yet, if it absorbs me, if it be given first place in my affections and thoughts, it becomes an idol. It may be a business, a loved one, or even my service for Christ. Anyone or anything which comes into competition with the Lord's ruling me in a practical way is an idol. Simply put, simply put as a definition, it is the thing loved or the person loved more than God. The thing loved or the person loved more than God. Matthew 22, verse 37 is a familiar verse in the Bible that my little cubby was telling me just the other day. And it says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. We know that the Bible says we are to love God supremely, love God first. He is to be the first one in our affections, the, the top thing that we worship and obey. And yet we see that many people throughout scripture, and we are going to see in our own hearts, they, we tend to put something above God and to worship something else rather than him. That is such a temptation for us. I was looking throughout the Bible and just fascinated the different Bible characters, the people in the Bible who idols pop up over and over. And one that stood out to me was the priest Eli. Eli the priest in 1 Samuel 2 and 3. Eli the priest was a ruler in Israel, and it says that Eli's sons were worthless men, that their sin, that his children's sin was very great because they treated the Lord's offering with contempt. And yet Eli did not restrain them. Eli did not stop them from this sin. God actually says to Eli in 1 Samuel 2, 29, 1 Samuel 2, 29, he says, 
Eli, why do you honor your sons above me? Why do you seek peace with your sons rather than peace with me? Eli knew that as a father, his job was to restrain the sins of his son, and yet his sons had become an idol in his life. He wanted to be their friend rather than discipline as the Lord had commanded them. He was willing to disobey God's command to discipline his children when they were rebellious. And God took that very seriously, that he had made an idol of his children. In 1 Samuel 3.13, God says to Eli that he would punish him and his household for this sin. It says, for the iniquity that he knew, that Eli knew, because his sons were blaspheming God, and yet he did not restrain them. The Bible says clearly that we cannot commit this sin of idolatry. In 1 Corinthians 10.7, it just says it so plainly for us. Do not be idolaters. Do not be idolaters. Do not even get close to this sin. Flee from it. And the end of 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, as John is wrapping up that letter we studied not too long ago in Women's Bible Study, he ends it with this. Guard yourselves from idols. Guard yourselves from idols. Do not go near them. Well, the idols we worship today, they're very different than the statues of the Old Testament. Probably none of us have a golden calf or even a Buddha in their house, right? That might be something that came to your mind as an idol. But we likely struggle with this sin more than we realize. We worship other things above God. Usually not sinful things, often good things, blessings from our Lord that become higher in our love, higher than God. And here's a few things that came to mind. Family, you know, maybe like Eli, our children, whether they're young or grown children. Our spouse, a friendship, a relationship, our homes, success in a business or a potentially money or things, our beauty, our health, our safety, protection from trouble. I mean, the list goes on and on of potential things that aren't necessarily wrong or sinful or bad, but they can easily become something that we pursue more than God. Something that can help us to identify the potential idols in our life is to ask a question and fill in the blank. If I had blank, then I would be happy. If you were to ask yourself that, if I had this, then I would be happy. I think that's a first step in helping us to see an idol that might be in our heart. Or if we look at it on the other side, if I lost this, then I'd be miserable. I wouldn't be able to survive. I wouldn't be able to go on. I wouldn't be able to handle it. If I had this thing, a husband, I'd be happy. Or if I had this comfort, I'd be happy. If I had that, whatever it might be for you, that might reveal a potential idol. Or if I lost this thing, I wouldn't be able to go on. What are you tempted to worship above God? So I wonder, why do we do this? Why did the Israelites engage in this sin? Well, let's get back into our text 
as it takes us to point number two, to figure out why the Israelites turned to the sin of idolatry. And so let's write it down this way for point number two. You and I, we need to expose, excuse me, the root of your idolatry. We need to expose the root of your idolatry. Well, back in our text, we can see just from that reading of those first few verses that the, and we can remember where the Israelites grew up, the culture that they were influenced by, right? There were idols all around them, and we know it's easy to do what the world around us does. So I'm sure that was part of the influence on their choices, going back to something that they knew that was comfortable, something that they saw all around them in Egypt. But also we see a fear. We see that the people are fearful. You know, Moses is on the mountain. He's been gone for so long. What's going on? I don't, has God forgotten us? We don't know what to do. We are without our leader. We're, we, we begin to distrust God. We're fearful about what might or might not happen. We don't know what's going on. And so we can see that that fear turned into this uh, sin of idolatry. But also there was an impatience, right? Just wait, I mean, 40 days. Oh, I haven't gotten an answer yet. What's going on? I'm going to wait so long. And so they begin to take this into their own hands, right? They begin to do something about it themselves rather than wait and trust in God. And I love what verses 8 and 9 say about what God says about the Israelites, his commentary on their behavior and their attitude and what they're doing. So look in verse 8 as I read this. God says, they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And Yahweh said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked is a great term you probably haven't used recently, but it really refers to um, oxen or animals that would be yoked up. You probably haven't yoked up any animals recently either, so maybe that doesn't strike a chord with you, but a yoke is when you have that wooden piece, that bar that goes across two animals so that they can both pull in the same direction and work together. Well, a stiff-necked animal refuses the yoke, won't go under or submit to that yoke. That stiff-necked animal wants to go his own way, wants to do his own thing. Really, that animal, like the people of Israel, thinks that they know what's best, what would bring them the most pleasure, what the thing that they would want to do, they pursue that rather than submitting to that yoke. And that's what God says about Israel. They're stiff-necked people. They won't Submit and follow God. But we're just not talking about the people, right? We see that Aaron himself also engaged in this sin. The leader, the man, the spiritual leader put in charge, the one that we're going to see be the high priest, right? He, he's the ringleader of this. He creates the idol. I mean, not only just the people as a whole, like a group, but we see the man himself engage in this sin of idolatry. Well, why do you and I choose to sin this way? Why do you, why do I engage in this sin? Well, I think it's helpful to understand what Jeremiah 17.9 says about us. Jeremiah 17.9 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart is sick, it's rotten, it's bad. And 
I had a great conversation with my son Aaron, the little four-year-old in the car the other day. He said to me as we were driving, you know, mom, how big is your heart? And I'm like, I think I, it's like this big, you know, somewhere around there. And um, he's like, oh, okay, well, how big is God? And I'm like, well, God's really big, you know, trying to explain it to a four-year-old. I mean, God is the most powerful thing. And he goes, well, mom, he must be pretty small to be able to fit inside your heart, you know? And I'm like, okay. So, of course, we had a theological lesson, I'm sure, that he loved because I told him, well, your heart isn't just your organ. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about all that you are, your inner man, right? As Pastor Mike likes to say, the software. So, our, our will, our affections, our thoughts, our choices, our desires, our hopes, our dreams, the thing that makes up who we are. And the Bible says that we're born with that desire to sin, that who we are desires to do the wrong thing. And yet, the hope and joy of the gospel, one of the things that we see in 2 Corinthians 5.17 is that when we become Christians, we are given a new heart. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We see further in Ezekiel 36.26, Ezekiel 36.26, that this new heart that we're given causes us to walk in his statutes and obey his rules. So when we become Christians and we're given this new heart, this new spirit, we should be fine, right? We should pursue the Lord. We shouldn't be distracted at all. If we're really a Christian, this new spirit within us, we should, we should just follow that and be good to go. Well, unfortunately, no. No. Second, uh, I mean, sorry, Galatians, Galatians 5, 16 and 17 says this. It says that we have a battle within us between this new heart and something called the flesh. It says this in Galatians 5, 16. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, the thing that's causing you, want, tempting you to sin. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Even with a new heart, we still have our flesh that we drag around with us. The flesh is the problem. It is the root. We all have it. None of us will be free of it in this life. And so we know that there is a battle of that new heart and new spirit with the flesh. We need to make sure we are battling that flesh, that we are following what our new heart and new spirit, which causes us to walk in God's statues. We, we need to make sure that we're doing and pursuing those things and engaging in the battle that our flesh and spirit have within us. I'm sure we do this sin of idolatry as well because of the cultural influences around us. I know that that is part of it. I know if you listen to anything or go on your social media or walk around at a park, the things that this world is talking about are, are tempting to get involved in and to become so focused on. Just like the Israelites who were influenced by the culture, I'm sure that that is a battle we must fight as well 
to not engage in this sin of idolatry. And really, we know it can be different for each person in this room. What might tempt us away from loving God first? It's often when we believe we know our, what our highest good is, the thing that we follow because we believe it would make us happy. We, we follow that sin rather than following God. We're not convinced that God is better than whatever we turn to in our worship of idols. Let me give you a practical example of this. Let's say that you see a sin of admiration or wanting acceptance. Now, wanting acceptance in a lot of ways is not wrong, but it can become an idol in our lives, right? So let's say you kind of see that that is something that you really desire, that other people's opinions really motivate you to do or not do certain things. The relationships that you have are all focused on what kind of acceptance that you could get from that person. So they might be inappropriate or bad relationships even because we're pursuing this idol of acceptance and admiration. The things on your calendar start to pop up as things that would help you to get more acceptance. Maybe even the vanity starts to creep in because you want to look a certain way so that you can be accepted. And now maybe you start to lie. You realize you're kind of shading the truth, lying, because you don't want people to see what you really are like. You don't really want them to know what you struggle with because you are motivated by that acceptance. That's become an idol. You start to get angry and bitter. Anytime anyone calls you out on any sin, you cannot handle that rebuke because I, I need to be accepted. I need to be loved. So you can see how that, that goal of acceptance, that fear of man, of wanting people's opinion can become an idol, can become more important than following what God would have you do. And so I think it's helpful to say what thoughts, imaginations, desires bring you happiness? Back to that happiness question. What do you think about that brings you happiness? What do you find alluring in this life that would draw you away from following God? And also, it's helpful to look at the habitual sins that we might have in our own life. What are those habitual or reoccurring sins that we keep coming back to? When we see a pattern of sin that occurs in our life, it, it, re, it kind of serves as a red flag, an alert to us that this may be a problem that's deeper than we can really even understand, worth really seeking out and searching. Habitual sins are the ones that you keep coming back to and often point out something that you might idolize in your own life. And of course, as I see this um, wording of, expose the root of your idolatry. I can't help but think about a weed. Have you had these weeds in your yard? I'm not a great gardener, but I do get the concept of a weed and how to get rid of it. Um, because I've tried it the wrong way. Have you tried to just chop off the top, right? I'll just kind of get the top, okay, bada bing, bada boom. And then what happens? We know that there is a root underneath the ground, and so it can come right back up. It can pop up again. Well, I think the root level is what we're trying to get at when we look at the sin in our life. 
What is motivating us behind some of these other thorns, these other sinful choices that we might be making? Let me give you another example to help you see what I'm talking about. Maybe you see or know or are convicted about that you might desire pleasure or comfort in this world. Right? You just like to be comfortable. That might be an idol to you. That might be kind of under the surface, the root, that might be driving you to make choices that would not honor God because you're pursuing that idol of pleasure and comfort. And so we start to see some thorns pop up in our life. Maybe we notice that our house is messy and unorganized because we're lazy. You know, I don't really want to put the time into my house because that's not pleasurable, that's not comfortable for me. And so we kind of see, oh, we're not really dealing with the organization like we should, the cleanliness in our house. Or maybe we start to see that we're short-tempered with our children when they make a mess. Oh, stop making a mess, you know? They're, we're frustrated with that. But really, it kind of pointing back to the fact we just don't want to deal. We, we, we want to be comfortable. We don't want to get up. We don't have to clean that. We just want things to be easy for us. Or maybe we start to see that we're kind of bitter and start complaining about our spouse or our roommate or someone because they're not pulling their weight. I have to clean everything. I have to do everything around here. You know, that idol of pleasure might be motivating kind of that complaining spirit, or even we might see an addiction or a focus on social media or Netflix, binge watching, whatever that might be, might, that might pop up because we could just spend hours and hours watching mindlessly because that's pleasurable, that's comfortable. And all of those things may stem from that desire to be comfortable, to seek pleasure. So we need to really ask God to see what is the thing motivating us? What is the thing that we might be putting above you, willing to sin in a variety of ways to achieve this idol that we have in our life? So what do we do with this new realization, maybe this idol that we see or these idols that we see pop up? Well, that's where we're going to end the sermon in our third and final point. We don't want to just be left wondering or seeing this problem and then wondering what we do about it. So let's look at what Israel does, well, really what Moses does and what we're called to do as Christians as we look at point number three, which says demolish your idols. You and I, we need to demolish, completely obliterate our idols. If we look back in Exodus 32, verse 19 and 20, we can see what God and Moses do to fix the sin of idolatry. It says this in verse 19. And as soon as he came near the camp, that's Moses, and he saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire, and ground it to powder, and scattered it on the water, and made the people of Israel drink it. You know, he didn't just say, well, that's kind of a cool-looking calf. Maybe we'll put it in the tabernacle, or maybe we can save some of the gold for use in another way. No, Moses saw that thing, burned it up, and made the people drink it, fully getting rid of it. We can see Moses then 
says to the people of Israel, who is on the Lord's side, and the Levites, they step forward, and there's an immediate consequence for sin, right? The Levites go through the camp, and they end up killing the idolaters. And so we, we think that it's about 3% of the population that was killed that day as the Levites go through the camp and deal decisively with this sin. But then also we see the consequence of a plague coming later in our passage. A plague comes through the camp and other people are also affected because of this, this sin, this serious sin. Moses then goes back up the mountain because he wants to go and try and atone for the people's sin. He tries to make a payment for the people's sin before God. And so he heads back up the mountain and he says this to God in Exodus 32, 31. Exodus 32, 31. It says, so Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas. This people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses says this is a great sin before the Lord. He says, God, please be merciful, forgive them. But then he also offers himself as a payment. And yet we know that Moses can't be the payment for Israel's sin, right? Moses is a sinner himself. There is only one man that could pay for our sins and demolish sin completely for you and for me, and that's Jesus. This really points to Jesus, the one man who came to earth, who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross, taking on the payment that you and I deserve, and who paid the penalty of sin for you and for me to be made right with God. He was the perfect mediator for us. He, his death and his resurrection demolished sin, but now he has asked us as his followers to daily deal with the sin and demolish the sin in our own lives. So what's the response to idolatry? We need to demolish it, right? And if you've ever had a home demo project where you're you know, redoing something, you know what a demo means, right? I mean, you fully remove that wall. I remember removing a wall in our home and I was handed a sledgehammer and I was like, really? You know, okay, I just start, I mean, it's like every single thing when you demolish something in your house has to be taken out. You don't leave a little piece here. You even have the shop back, right? Every piece of dust is gone because you need to put something new in its place. Well, we need to demolish the sin that we see in our lives as well and replace it with the things that God would find good. So I think the first step in demolishing our idols is really going back to point one and two. Having that time in front of the Lord and saying, God, reveal to me the idols in my life. This is a difficult prayer, potentially, but this is a wonderful prayer because as we seek to become more like Jesus, we want God to reveal to us the things that we are tempted to love above him. We need to humbly come before him and say, what are the things that I am tempted to seek after above you 
And that's a prayer that God wants to answer to us. But then once we've hopefully identified some of those root sins deep in our life that motivate us to sin over and over again, chasing after something we love more than God, it's helpful to work through um, a pattern that we see in the New Testament found in Ephesians 4, verse 22. So if you want to turn over to Ephesians 4, 22, that's where we're going to look to see how we really deal further with these sins that have been revealed to us. Ephesians 4, 22 says this. It says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, that's the flesh, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So our first sub-point here in point number three is that we need to put off the sins in our life. We need to put them off. We need to confess them this putting off happens through confession and repentance. We need to confess them to the Lord. Moses said, these people have sinned a great sin. He did not try to cover it up. He did not try to make it lighter. He did not try to say, really, it was just, you know, they were, they were kind of bored or they were impatient. No, he said, this is a great sin, and we need to do the same thing in our time with God. We need to do what Proverbs 28, verse 13 says. Proverbs 28, 13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions, whoever hides them, their sin, whoever covers them up, kind of acts like they're not really there. It says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. We need to confess and forsake our sins before the Lord. Humble confession is the first step in ridding yourself of idols. No blame shifting or excuses, but just a recognition of where you're at before a holy God. And then we need to make sure that as we're putting them off, we're repenting of this sin, which means we turn from the sin and we turn to God. Matthew 5, 29 and 30 says this. Matthew 5, 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to stumble... Tear it out and throw it from you. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. I mean, this is not a literal tearing off of your body parts. But the point is that we need to take sin seriously. Whatever is tempting us away from doing what God asks us to do, we need to say that's a serious thing that I am no longer going to do. And instead, God, I'm going to turn and follow you in your ways. We need to maybe change routines things that we normally watch or participate in, maybe friendships or relationships. I mean, there needs to be an extreme response, so much of a tearing away of something that we might love and hold on to. We may need to get rid of some things in our life to help us put off the sin. Well, point B and our passage goes on to say that we need to renew our minds next. It says we need to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. We need a change in our thinking before we change our actions. And I think this can be often overlooked. 
we can be convicted of a sin and thank God we want to stop doing that, help us to do the right thing, but maybe we don't spend the time to really ask God and pursue a renewal of our minds, a change in our thinking. We need to be convinced that forsaking this sin is better than pursuing it. And so that's where a study of God's word comes in. You know, I'm not a journaler, but when God has revealed idols in my own life, the journal comes out. Because I know my mind has been focused on this sinful thing, and I want to change it. And so I start to write down all the verses I can about this sin that I see. And I just write it over and over. It's like, ooh, 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 it's getting me, right? But then I read through those things and I start to say, God, help me to not pursue that. Help me to see what you would want me to pursue instead. Help me to get rid of this. And I start to look at what God would want me to pursue. I start to search in God's word and pray and have that relationship with Jesus and say, God, help me to build this relationship with you and know you better. Because as I pursue you, Jesus, that's going to help me to put off continuously these sins in my life. Part of the renewing of our minds is seeking Jesus wholeheartedly and growing in our devotion to him. Moving closer to him will help us to move farther away from the sins that we love. Well, lastly, we need to put on, as our passage says, put on the new self to begin doing the righteous deeds and actions that would please God. What do we need to do in place of that sin? It's not enough to just say, I need to stop doing that. Yes, you do need to stop doing that, but what is going to go in its place? What can we replace it with that God would love, God would say is the right sort of things? We need to have new righteous patterns. We need to have new righteous choices. So let me give you an example of how this might look, this process. Let's say that you realize you idolize beauty or your appearance, okay? And so that's something that's revealed to you, and you want to kind of go through this process. And of course, it's not like a, you know, plug it in and do it and you're fine, but we're saying this is something we do in order to attack the sin that we see in our lives. And so the first thing we might do is say, I need to put off this, which means I would need to confess to God. God, I see that this sin of wanting to be beautiful, wanting to have my appearance, it just it's, be, it's become so important to me. We want to go before God and say, I need to stop focusing on my looks, God. Help me to turn away from that and to turn to focusing on my inner beauty right? And so we would begin to renew our minds. Not only might we write down a bunch of passages about vanity in the Bible, that's just kind of to see, oh, that is what I'm pursuing, but we would want to start looking at inner beauty within the Bible. We don't just want to see the thing we're, we're doing and we want to stop, but we want to, what does God say about women who should seek inner beauty? And so we would turn to First Peter. We might study women in the Bible who had this inner beauty, Studying God's word to find out what he finds beautiful so that our minds can be renewed and we can start pursuing what God finds beautiful. And meditate prayerfully, talk to God about those things. And then we would want to put on, we would want to start doing things that would be righteous and godly 
in response to this sin. So maybe that would look like a change in our getting ready in the morning, the amount of time we spend, or the amount of money we spend on beauty, tools, and things that we go do. Maybe we would get a husband or friend to help hold us accountable. Maybe it would even just be a shift, and I'm not saying these are the only things that would change, but maybe it would be a shift in, you know what, God, I see that I'm willing to get up early to exercise, and yet I've neglected my time with you. Let me switch that around. If I'm up early, I can only exercise after I've had my quiet time, because you're first. And so we would start to look at the things, the practical changes in our actions and our daily schedules and our money to see that we would make this change in pursuing God. You can see that this is a powerful type of aggressive action in our spiritual lives. Many of us, I think, are convicted about sins and our failings, and yet often sometimes we don't do anything about it. We don't really wrestle with it and try to do this put-off renewal and put on that we see in scripture because God wants us to rid ourselves of the idols that compete for our top love he's supposed to be the top love in our life and you know what he's graciously given us the Holy Spirit to help us I mean this could be a very disappointing sermon if we did not have the Holy Spirit because we might think, you know what, I've got to do more. I've got to figure this out on my own. I've just, I mean, I've, I've got to pull myself up by my own bootstraps and figure this out. But that is not what the Christian life is, right? God has given us the Holy Spirit to empower us and strengthen us. God has given us that new heart so that we can pursue him. I mean, what a joy that is to know that I'm not on my own. Yes, he's called me to work out my salvation but that he has given me the Holy Spirit right there to help me to pursue him. Well, many of us may have walked into this message thinking, you know what, I don't really struggle with idols. This isn't really going to apply to me. I don't, I'm, you know, this is not something that I struggle with. And maybe as we've looked at Israel and our own lives, we might see that there, there could be idols that are potentially there popping up in our lives to draw us away from honoring Christ first, from following him first. We all struggle with this sin of idolatry. Even Aaron, the spiritual leader of Israel, struggles. We all do. Is there anything that is in competition with your love for Christ and your pure devotion to him? Well, as we've identified the sin of idolatry today, I hope you are able to name some of your potential idols, that you are to see what the root of your idolatry is, and then that you've kind of made this commitment to deal decisively with this sin of idolatry and demolish the idols that God reveals to you. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for this text. And I thank you that we are able to see that we struggle, God, that we have this flesh, this desire to do the wrong thing, and it's at war. There's a battle within us. Yes, God, we love you and we want to keep you first, but we are in a battle against the sins that easily can creep in. Help us to engage in that battle. Help us to see the things in our life that you would not be pleased with and want to deal with them. Thank you, God, that um, you have given us your Holy Spirit to do this, 
What an encouragement it is. What a hope-filling truth it is, knowing that you have the Holy Spirit within each Christian in this room to empower us and strengthen us to pursue holiness. God, you've not left us alone, but you have equipped us with all that we need to pursue this righteous life. God, I pray for great discussions, transparent discussions that would help us to move steps forward in our walk with you as we desire to keep you as our first love above anything else in this life that may be vying for our attention. We ask this all in your son's precious name. Amen. Well, you're dismissed to your groups. Thank you.